On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there for a few days. So I brought a guest this week. This way, dude. We'll see how this goes. So this is Yadi, and I promise there's a good reason for this other than just because he's going to do this constantly. So last week he got to meet my wife, uh, Teresa, and if you don't know her, well then I'm, I hope that was a good experience. I thought this week you should meet Yadi. Actually, <laughs> I think there's some stories here that can actually, we can wrap all this together, and in particular, now that you've heard Teresa, you've maybe got a sense for, A, she's a labor and delivery nurse, which means she deals with a, a humanity in a certain time of their life and see some of the, the dark sides of just uh, some of the ways that we hurt one another around sex. And then she also uh, is very direct because a couple weeks ago she translated for her dad if you were here and so she did the interpreting. So I'm hoping that you can then use all of that to understand this. When the boys were super little, they were headed to the ski hill and my youngest has wanted a dog since he could talk. Uh, we had three boys. Teresa grew up with dogs, wasn't particularly fond of them. I did not grow up with dogs. I saw, I mean, it's like, my thing was like, it's hard enough to keep paint on the trim and doors on the hinges with three boys. We don't need a dog. And there was this moment they were driving to the ski hill. I think they were probably all still in elementary school. And one of them uh, said, hey, when I get older, it was my youngest said, uh, when I get older, I'm going to have one boy and one girl. And Teresa saw that as an opportunity to do uh, sex education with the children because she, she sees the dark side of when this is done poorly. And so she launched into this long expose as to why, as humans, you don't have control over the gender of your babies. And my, one of our friends, Steve, has always said, like, I'm pretty sure your boys educated all of Central School when they were in elementary school because they had all the facts really early in life. And so after she finished what I'm sure was a very good lecture, uh, he said, I was talking about dogs, mom. <laughs> so six years ago, uh, the conversation again kicked up. You're doing good, Yuds, good job. Uh, six years ago, the conversation once again kicked up. Go ahead, you can be seated. Sorry, I shouldn't have bugged you. About getting a dog. And this time, we were like, no, we can't get a dog because if we were going to get a dog, it would need to be one of those that doesn't shed, like a golden doodle, and those are so expensive. We're not doing that. And then the conversation was, yeah, but I really want to burn a doodle. And we we're like, those are too big. They're like 70 pounds. We're not getting to burn a doodle. If we get a dog, it's going to be a golden doodle that's going to be like 40 pounds. And we're just like, we're not going to spend a couple grand on that. 
And that night, when Teresa was upstairs, they all share one giant bedroom, and she was just saying goodnight, uh, he, he pulled out 350-some dollars of cash. I don't think he robbed a bank. He's just a good saver. And in ways that, you know, you only can when you're in elementary school, said to Teresa, like, well, if I gave this to get a dog, could I get a dog? The next day, and I'm not kidding, uh, the, the next day he went to school and the teacher covered the table as you do before an art project with newspapers, and they were going to do an art project. And he looked down, and there in the classifieds was an, an ad for Golden Doodles, 900 bucks, which is still an insane amount of money, but cheap by Golden Doodle standards. And so he started to beg his teacher, like, can I, can I cut that out and take it home? And as I recall, uh, there was some like, yeah, it's like three weeks old, there's no way that's not going to do anything, but sure, okay. And when he got home, again, Teresa being uh, the parent that she is, she goes, well, there's a phone number on it. Call it. See what happens. So he called up, and what he learned was that actually that ad was old, and that litter of puppies was gone, but the woman in town, she had two females, and she bred one and didn't think that it took. I didn't ask questions. And so then a few weeks later, she bred the other one, and apparently that did took. I also didn't ask questions about that. But she's like, so I've got a, a, another litter that I'm just getting ready to advertise for, and there's only one accounted for, so come on out. And the next day, we were out there, and again, we were like, but it's got to be like 50 pounds. And she's like, ah, the dad's 70, the mom's 50, it's going to be in that range. And I remember, like, digging through the puppies, uh, the, the lady was like, oh yeah, I can feel his bones. He's small-boned. He's going to be real small. <laughs> so, I think he's 110. But here's the question I want to ask, and, I, and for me, as it's just, I was reflecting on this week, I thought, oh, maybe we can create a visual. Good job, Yods. Uh, is this question, go ahead to the next slide. Uh, what, do you, what do you believe about God's providence? It can be a very uncomfortable topic, uh, especially if you grew up in a home or in a church environment where that card was just played uncomfortably fast. It can be also very difficult if, if you've suffered, or even more so, there's now research coming out around saying that, like, we do better with God when we suffer, but vicariously we struggle when others suffer. In other words, most crises of faith around suffering aren't yours, it's someone close to you. Maybe that's the conversation for you. But what do you believe about God's providence? And by God's providence, nice work. What, what I mean here is, uh, where, where God's providence differentiates itself from God's sovereignty is providence is personal. Uh, providence suggests that this God doesn't just generally care, but he cares for you. Providence suggests that this God provides protection for those that are his. And it reminds me a little bit, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about part of what's hard for us to understand around prayer is how could God be personal to seven billion people? And what he points out is that what we tend to do is we think of time with a beginning, and he just said if you were to take a piece of paper and put a line and you'd put the beginning over here or the past over here and the future over here, we struggle to understand God's personalness because we struggle to understand time and how God could actually be present to all people all the time. What he points out is God's nowhere on that timeline, that God actually is the sheet of paper, that time is outside of God. And so when I ask this question, what do you believe about God's providence, I'm trying to ask this question of to what extent not just do you intellectually believe or disbelieve it, but to what extent do you see it as a as a resource, emotional resource, intellectual resource, uh, this, this guiding thing that gets us through life. And where I think it's appropriate to bring it up this morning is I actually think that's what's going on in John 2. 
Now there's other things around ceremonial stuff that we'll get into next week when we do the second half into chapter two, but there's this other narrative here. Just by way of review, Jesus, he's put together a few disciples, he heads off with them, the first place they seem to go, or at least the first place John tells us about is this, this city called Cana. There's a wedding there. And in this culture, as you might imagine, where you didn't have the luxury of celebrating all the time, weddings are a big deal. They could last as long as seven days. The host is obligated to, to provide especially the wine for the entire festival. And yet they get halfway into it or some portion into it and they run out of wine. And that's a big deal. And it's especially a big deal for the host. His, his social status may never recover from this. And then Mary, who incidentally is never named, her, she's never called Mary in John's gospel, but Jesus' mother, she comes to Jesus and she says, hey, they're out of wine. Now we can only speculate as to why she came to him. There's, there's a couple that made sense to me. One is, maybe Mary already knew the heart of this 30-year-old man so well that she knew he was this compassionate person who would actually care more about this man's reputation than he would the ceremonial laws that are otherwise gonna get broken. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's kind of a boundaries thing because Jesus brought these disciples with him unannounced and there's this like, hey, you created this strain, you brought the extra people, so you deal with it, solve the problem. We don't know. But watch then what Jesus says to her, next slide. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we're not gonna get into it. I'm just gonna ask you to trust me. When he calls her woman, that's not, that's not disrespectful. Uh, that, that's a cultural thing that we won't unpack here this morning. It's the second sentence that I just wanna spend a few moments reflecting on. My hour has not yet come. You could spend a decent amount of time asking like what built-in assumptions are in this statement? See, what we know is that Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of John in particular, Jesus refers to his hour several times. It has with it his crucifixion. He's pointing rather ominously to this point that John's audience reading in AD 90 or 95, sometime in that decade, they would have known about this. He's pointing to the point of his crucifixion. And part of the intent is Jesus was not a victim. Part of the story is Jesus chose this. But what else is built in? What other assumptions are built into the statement? There is an acceptance, just don't roll off the stage. <laughs> there is an acceptance, isn't there? But there's also an acknowledgement of what? There's a permission, isn't there? To rest in the fact that his hour isn't ultimately gonna be determined by Pontius Pilate or, or the religious aristocracy or any of the villains of the story or even by him. He can rest in that timing belongs to who? It belongs to God. So we can ask this question, what do you believe about God's providence? But I think to, to be fair, one of the things we can also observe is Jesus believed in it. Like he lived into it. And I wonder if part of your story might be that we need to acknowledge it can get overplayed. And when we overplay it, we start talking about everything from football games to test scores to things that it just doesn't seem God would really care about or, or would have time for. We can also overplay it because I think sometimes we, we come up with ideas like soulmates and there just doesn't seem to be very based in scripture. Sometimes you ask God his will and it seems like the response is, I don't care, there's lots of good choices, do something. 
But if we acknowledge that we can play that card too quickly, might it also give permission to acknowledge we can be too reticent to play it? And maybe part of uh, the permission of historically following Jesus is while looking suffering in the face, which is what John's audience would have been doing, we have this permission to know that even in these circumstances, God has some semblance of, of influence. Now, to be fair, we all have a bias when it comes to God's, God's control and human free will. If you spend any time thinking about these things, we all show up with a bias. Where that intersection is, uh, I think, here's my bias, I don't think the scriptures and God through the scriptures intends us to know the precise point. Where the X axis and the Y axis meet, I don't think we get that luxury. It seems that what we get is invited to live in the mystery of there are two variables. I love the historical statement, God does everything, but humans do something. It seems to speak to the paradox of it. But what if, what if the providence of God is a gift? Now, now look what she says in response to him. Next slide. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And I think it's especially interesting, one of the hard things to do when, when studying the text is to give yourself permission to go, okay, this is a historical story that happened in like AD 27 or AD 30 or whatever the year was, but it's also being written by an author who, who's telling his own story. And John says something uh, in, in chapter 20, next slide, that I think is important to, to note. He, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Which implies what? There's time to tell X number of stories, and I told these, and I didn't tell these, which gives us permission to ask, why is John telling this story? Like, what's the purpose of this story? Why, why, why does he put it here? Is this the chronological order, or is this the artistic order? Do whatever he tells you. What's going on there? Well, maybe part of it, as John is speaking to his own audience, who themselves are suffering and facing suffering, maybe part of it is this, this Jesus, like he is the shepherd that we've been talking about from the very beginning. There is in the scriptures this really steady theme of a God who is in fact outside of time, but is also inside of it with us, and the miracle of miracles is offers to lead us. I mean, think of Psalm 23, this great psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right path for his name's sake. What is that? Well, it's either a trope or it's this deep spiritual conviction that part of how we navigate what it means to be human is we live into the fact that there's a God who wants to guide and lead. Maybe John is saying, hey, this Jesus, that's him. He is the one. But there's something else too that I, 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 for me, this was really fun and I got distracted by it for, for a bit of time. We have, uh, the, the, the Bible that Jesus read, if you will, was something that we would today call the Septuagint. It's, it's the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek. And what the Septuagint allows scholars to do, and therefore people like us to learn from, 
is to compare, okay, when the New Testament people wrote in Greek and, and they're writing in the same language that the Septuagint's in, where's the similarities? Well, there's a story in Genesis about a guy named Joseph. Maybe you've heard of him. He was unjustly sold into slavery by his brothers. He ended up in Egypt where by God's providence he rose into this place of great power, but then he was falsely accused of sexual assault. That resulted in his being thrown in jail. He was there to die, but then there was this dream that the Pharaoh kept having and word got out that Joseph could interpret dreams and so Joseph did interpret Pharaoh's dream and once again Joseph got out of jail and this time he he became once again like second in command to the Pharaoh, to this powerful person. And there's this place where, where after things are unfolding and there's a famine that's about to hit Egypt, the people come to Pharaoh and they're like, what are we gonna do? Next slide, Genesis 41, 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Now we're not speaking Greek so we can't see it, but scholars will tell you what Mary says and what's said here, they parallel one another. What if we have a tendency to overcomplicate things and part of John's message is simply as N.T. Wright says, Uh, when people do what Jesus says, things happen. Maybe part of what's going on here is John, the author, speaking to an audience, saying, yeah, you don't know the future, and yeah, things are hard, and yeah, there's suffering, and just do the next thing he tells you to do. Uh, A person who's become a good friend of mine who lives in Georgia, his name's Chris, he, uh, he, he says it this way. He says, if you follow Jesus long enough, There will be times where you know you're following him and you have no idea where you're going. What if it's kind of like that? So notice there's now two things going on here. A Jesus who seems to rest in the providence of God and and, and then one who just invites, like, just simplify it. But there's a third thing going on, isn't there? I I would suggest a third assumption that that deserves our attention. And it's, It deals with this question of, so if Jesus, if part of how he puts together what it means to be human is to rest in God's providence, he repeatedly is talking about my job is to do his will, and let's be honest, like that's not always easy to know what that is. And if it, to the extent that it is easy, it's just like do whatever he tells you next. There's still a third piece. And I wonder if the third piece doesn't have something to do with, Jesus operates on no assumption that the providence of God for him will protect him and shelter him and guard him from any future suffering. And that seems to be, for me, the paradox. I want providence to the extent that providence means everything works out to my own design. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, this great um, missiologist from the mid-20th century, he said, I'm neither an optimist nor I'm a pessimist. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's this, it's this way of looking forward that's built upon something else entirely. In fact, in John 7, there's this place where Jesus is once again working on his hour and he makes this statement, I will be with you a little while longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. Now that's warm and fuzzy, but what's implied? We could say parenthetically, the son of God has to die by way of death. I'm going to the Father. I guess here, here's the way I've, I think, genuinely thought and prayed for you this week is some of you, 
I, I, I just, in a room this size, some of you are just stuck on the X and the Y axis. And my hope, my prayer genuinely has been that if nothing else, what you identify is, is your spiritual progress has been stunted because there's this thing that you've not dealt with. And it's this intersection of God's control and human free will and, and, and the justice of all of that. And I don't, my intention isn't to solve that problem for you, but maybe for you the action step this morning is you've got work to do. Maybe you need to go make contact with a spiritual director. I can help you with that. Maybe you need to meet with someone from the staff, just a good friend who's, who's centered in Christ. Like my, my friend Bob, who I do spiritual direction with, he's a retired Navy chaplain, and he, he said to me this week, he said, Adam, uh, part of what spiritual direction does is it just gives you as a human the opportunity to say something out loud, and there's this weird thing that happens spiritually that when we say something out loud to another human, like that's actually sometimes the moment where the Holy Spirit kind of reveals what it is that you're trying to make sense of. Maybe for you it's... it's making contact with a therapist, but somehow you've probably heard that there's, this, th- there's these ideas around if there's trauma that happens and someone doesn't work through them, like your growth stunts from that point. Maybe spiritually you're stunted and have been for years or decades because this is for you the trigger spot. And would you be willing to spend the next months, years doing the work of getting through that? For others of you, uh, my, my sense would be that there's something very specific that God has very specifically said, do this. And you, you're doing that internal rationalization thing and maybe it's been going on for months now. You're just not doing it. And my hope would be that maybe this morning would just give you the encouragement to just do it. That the tricky thing, and we've all experienced this, is rarely does God give us the next five things. It's usually just the next thing. Maybe you just needed to hear this, like, whatever he's saying, Go do that. Others of you are, are, are looking in the face of suffering in ways that I suppose we all will eventually, but for you it's more real. There's a divorce that's ending. There's a business that's failing. Uh, there's a diagnosis that's not going away. And I wonder if p- part of the invitation here is just this reminder that like the cross is a part of every story. And yet there's also in Psalm 23 uh, a part that's often missed, and I don't know if we have that, Bob, but this, remember that the other beautiful part of that psalm is even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. You rod in your staff, they comfort me. And the great, remarkable, beautiful thing about Jesus, Messiah, in my mind, is he's not asking you to do something that he himself didn't do. And some of you, you're here because you're trying to sort out what you believe in the most metaphysical, spiritual sense. And we're just thrilled that you're here. And if there's anything we can do to help you, we would love to do that. But for you, it's just this introductory idea of what do you do with the notion that there's a God who's so personal that he can be equally personal to every person on the planet throughout human history. And that to you might seem like a leap, and that's appropriate. It's called faith. And if there's anything we can do to help you in that as well. And as you work through it this morning, now we're going to give you a chance to take communion. I'm reminded again this week, communion doesn't always have to be this, this very kind of downtrodden thing that especially for the first couple hundred years, it was a celebration. And part of what we're inviting you to do here is just like make it all physical. That, that the invitation to be Christian is to be crucified with 
And then the great claim of Jesus is not, this isn't just a philosophical idea, it's that the life of God takes up residence in you and, and lives through you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.